You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. How's that? Oh, yeah. Ooh, That's better. Good, too. That's uh, good. Hey, do you see the little the little names we have in the bottom of our screen? It looks like Ryan Kempson is leading this podcast. Ooh, courageous leader. <laughs> I like leading. Yeah. That's why I used to coach. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't why don't, courageous leader? Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the to the people? To the people? What uh? What people are we talking to? Like my mom, Kirk's mom. <laughs> my my grandma listens. Yeah. Uh, my parents don't. Um, <laughs> okay. That's quite all right, I suppose. Miss Kempson, we would love you to be our next uh, listener, please. Do, do you remember the 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 prospect of wearing shorts where you could see your knees? was terrifying like if you could see your knees oh. in your basketball shorts you were the loser you were such a loser my, my, my best friend and i from high school went down uh to a small college to run in north carolina my freshman year and we both brought nothing but baggy basketball shorts and our coach refused to let us practice with the team until we got shorts and so every day that we came without him he'd make us put on this old pair of like xl women's running shorts just to to mock us and we had to tape with athletic tape tape them up because they were too big and so we we went to like the uh, thrift store that weekend and just spent like fifteen dollars on eight pairs of of short shorts and we couldn't stand it. And now I can't go back. Once you get used to it, now you feel heavy in anything else. Dude, I remember the first time you showed like you show up to practice and your thighs are showing was like an insecure day. Like you're like creeping with your like shoulders <laughs> hunched and you're all embarrassed to be walking with your thighs hanging out that was a big transition in college. yeah it's like showing up to school naked <laughs> that was a big barrier for me coming into ocr i thought it was so weird everybody wore spandex and tights and short shorts I was like, I, and now I'm, how many pairs do you have uh it's the only shorts i have <laughs> exactly right? work hard for those sexy legs you gotta show them off <laughs> I have the whitest, skittiest legs, I think, of anybody who races. So I guess I'm proud of them. Ours, ours are equally as white. You went away from compression shorts in the last year. Is that a, is that a um, comfort thing or just availability? It, it, was a, it was a comfort thing to please sponsor thing. Um, my uh, favorite shorts are still the virus compression because they don't, they're, they're not restrictive at all. Um, originally, it was uh, Athletics 8 Marina Sport. They had an awesome uh, material. Um, and uh, Virus is my favorite, but they aren't really willing to work with anybody. Um, and then, obviously, Spartan has the craft stuff, but the craft stuff was like the spandex were uh, – the only way I could describe it is like the crotch was too low. And, it was saggy, correct? Yeah. And then it restricted your leg movement. Exactly. And, I, and then as soon as it gets wet – you have like a baggy crotch. Yeah. So I was like, I can't wear those. And they wanted you wearing crafts. So I found like a good, I actually size down and then go with a five inch inseam. And it's enough to snug around my legs, but then it's high enough that it doesn't restrict my hips. So, so you put some thought into this. Yeah, I did. I, you know, I, I can't wear leggings. I, I, I don't know if it's because of my previous issues with my hips, but maybe it's just a mental thing. I don't like, I like my hips being free and just being able to run and open up. And I don't like the feeling of just being restricted. It's interesting. I feel the fastest in split shorts, 
but I can't stand coming out of, of, of any sort of water or mud with them like bunched up and clung to me. And so then I feel best the second half of the race in compression shorts. <laughs> yeah, true. it's funny. You know, I'd love to do a study to see if it actually makes a difference or I wear just a bunch of head cases. <laughs> head cases. Oh, 100% head cases. Except I think the saggy crotch thing, that's a limiter, man. No, the, the, those, those crafts, pant I, I wore the leggings in Seattle last year. It was my worst race of the year. Um, but uh, it, they just weren't comfortable, and they're super long. I felt like uh, I don't even know what it felt like, but um, yeah, I didn't like them at all. In college, we were convinced that if we raced in now, we liked compression shorts, but if we raced in them, that we we got more of that deep lactic burn in our hamstrings than if we ran in split shorts. <laughs> I thought I'd tie up earlier in compression shorts than I would in split shorts, and so this, like my entire outdoor senior year, I would only race in split shorts, even though I, I wanted to race in compression shorts because I knew, I knew that it was holding me back. Oh, that's funny. Uh, could be true. You know, what's it like 30% of our uh, oxygen consumption is done through our skin. So could have been restricted. Something Kemp's, like that. Kemp's, I got a question for you. What have you been doing? You got some paint on your hand. I've been painting my living room. Oh, you even got the plastic over the couch. You're a professional. Um, no, I don't think I'm a professional. I think I've fucked things up so many times that I've learned my lesson. <laughs> uh, and what are you drinking? I saw you drink. I saw you grabbing something. This is my elixir. Um, Herbe Mate. Herbe Mate? Herb Mate? I don't know. It's a tea. It's, uh, I, uh, I can't really drink coffee anymore. Uh, it just messes my head and I feel like I don't sleep. The caffeine and coffee, I, and I learned this a couple months ago that Apparently, there's different forms of caffeine. Caffeine isn't just caffeine. Um, bye, babe. Love you. Uh, so this, uh, I don't know. It settles my head a little bit better. Even before races, you don't take anything? Oh, I take a lot of things before I race. <laughs> <laughs> Caffeine-wise. Caffeine. Uh, no, so I'll have a typically tea in the morning. Um, and uh, I don't use their products except for pre-race, but I do use the Perform Elite right before a race. Um, I don't, I don't think e any of us have found anything better than Performally. No, like it's just it. So I like I take um, like the mushroom complex. All the I've been taking that for years. Cordyceps and Rishi and everything, um, and the beta alanine and the beet I take anyways. So I, I load my system up with that to I guess get those buffers. Um, and I just I couldn't. I mean, some whoever takes that stuff on a daily basis. Do you, Kirk? Take what stuff? Performally. Performally. I only take it when I need a big workout. Yeah, uh, that's it. Or and so I try to limit myself to twice a week. And honestly, I usually try to keep it to once a week just so I don't like acclimate yeah. to the product. Yep. Yeah, my Matt and I are are ridiculously sensitive to things. Like we're those kids. Like when your mom gave you like a little bit of candy or you had like a half a soda, just bouncing off the wall like nonstop. And I just I'm very sensitive to pretty much any any stimulant, and uh, I just I can't take that shit. <laughs> <laughs> when I started taking Performalite, I had to start with a half scoop mm -hmm. and that was plenty for me. And I, yeah. I saw people posting like, yeah, I took two, I'm up to two and a half, three scoops. <laughs> what is going to like, it's like mainlining at this point. What, yeah. I mean, you look at it, the look at the amount of caffeine in there and it's, it's bonkers. It's well, I have a client, uh, an athlete who 
I, I got her to take Perform Elite, but she was drinking her two cups of coffee in the morning, oh, like wow. as her normal routine. And then she was take then she was taking her Perform Elite before the workout. And she was telling me she was having like out of body experiences <laughs> while she was out, while she was out there running, like her brain was burning. And and I, I realized that we were we were mixing the equations a little bit, there, <laughs> which mixing, I thought was mixing funny. Mixing the substances, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Do you use it in training or do you save it for race day? Mm-mm. Only um, I can get by with tea or, or something for uh, training. Um, just race day. I need it just because we have to get up the crack of dawn. And I, You're not a morning person? Um, I'm a morning person. I'm not a morning race person. Like, gotcha. Even like most of my runs, I like my body to warm up. And so like I get up at normally 4.30 before a race and spend about an hour warming up and then I eat and then I warm up some more. So it's just like by the time race gets, like you're kind of like ready to go back to bed. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, the things you just mentioned, like you're kind of – the reason we wanted to talk to you was because you kind of – you have you came from other sports and you've had mm-hmm. to sort of develop your, your own ways, I feel like, and you've like really embraced that. So we have some questions and we're curious about a lot of those little things that you do. What, do you, what are you doing rolling out of bed in the morning on race day? What are you, what are you doing for an hour? Um, I do the same thing race day as I do every single morning. Um, so I wake up and a big glass of water, I go downstairs, um, and I basically just warm up my body in the sense of like, I start with my joints. Um, so I'm doing all sorts of stuff where I'm moving my joints, articulating them around to get, um, I guess engagement and just fluid stimulated to the area. Um, I don't share a lot of this stuff, um, yeah, you don't have to share whatever you don't want, of course. Yeah, uh, well, no, I'm just saying I don't share it because it's just it's very hard to, to teach and, and to teach properly. But um, wh- where I learned it from was from a, a gentleman named Tom Barbeau. Um, he formerly was an Olympic ski coach, and uh, he worked at uh, or taught a class at the school um, I went to up in New Hampshire, Plymouth State University. Um, and it was called the Berdanko Method, developed by Igor Berdanko. So I used that as a base principle. Um, and then I... I wrapped it into a few other methodologies. Um, one is specifically called Z Health Education, and it's kind of like a, a, a neuro approach to fitness. Um, and I wanted to tell the backstory of that and link it to the person who uses it the most that I introduced is Johnny Lunalima. Okay, so his um, so Ian Hosek is his running coach, but his actual coach is uh, an individual by the name of Taylor Cruz. Uh, his um, his business is called Cruise Elite. So he went to school at Plymouth too, and he worked under Tom Bow for like seven years, and then under Igor Berdanko for a while. And he's um, he does. I, I mentioned it because he does a great job on his Instagram and his business of sharing all these really crazy intrinsic um, neuromuscular and joint mobility drills um, that have a, a I guess a big bang for the buck. Um, so if anybody's interested, what I actually do is probably follow his Instagram account. I think it's at Cruise Elite, and you'll get a pretty good sense of um, what I do to warm up my body. So again, so I wake up in the morning, uh, move things around, um, do a lot of lower back, hip mobility, literally just moving the joints in all different directions um, to let them warm up. Um, and then it's, you know, most people do mobility stuff to feel an immediate impact. So like, I'm going to use a foam roller because it feels good right now. I'm releasing tension, which is that's appropriate. Like you can use that, those modalities. But what I find is when I move my joints in the morning, it's not 
instant, but you know, by the time I get to my workout mid morning or the afternoon, like I'm ready to rock. I don't have to go through much of a warm up, and I'm just pliable and ready to roll. Could you give us a quick example of like a movement or two that would be a joint mobility movement? So think about this. You have so many joints in your body, your wrists, your neck, everything down your spinal cord, hips, knees. Um, I always, you start with, uh, you can start with X's. So you're moving the joint linear in one direction than the other. All right. So we can see even our wrists. All right. If I've warmed up my wrists, I'm moving up and down side to side. Okay. And from there, you can move to circular motions, so articulate motions, and then um, you can go to figure eights and whatnot. So depending on the joint, I'm starting kind of linear, and then I'm working it around. The best way to describe this is if you've ever tried to get um, like a fence post or a pole out of the ground, is you move it back and forth, side to side, and then you're moving it around in a circle until it finally loosens up and you can pop it out. Um, your, your joint's the same way, you know. You have to. We we get we get very caught up with um, we get very caught up with stretching the muscles themselves. Um, when if you move the joint, um, your joint actually has uh, I guess the simple term is mechanoreceptors in them that sense movement, and the joint has a much bigger role uh, in determining if muscles are tight or if muscles are strong than the muscle itself. So if you can give a positive stimulus to the the joint, um, you can stimulate the musculature around it to relax and release and, and also to be stronger. Well, I seem like they talk about like, you know, ligaments and tendons in certain joints, mm -hmm. and that really determines where our power comes from, where our flexibility, where our range of motion. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming you're by stretching and mobilizing the joint, you're also loosening up the tendons and ligament insertions, which thus create a more fluid range of motion throughout the chain. Am I yeah. explaining that properly? Um, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's so hard to explain because there's so much to it. You know, that's one aspect of it. Um, but it, I, I think that the simplest way to describe it is, is just when you stimulate, um, your joint and it's, you're doing something that it likes and feels good, it's gonna, the rep, whatever that joint is responsible for, um, those musculatures or soft tissues are going to loosen up. Um, in, uh, Kind of contrary to that, if you have a joint, say a sprained ankle, and you're moving it, and that joint, or say you have your knee, you're cracking your knee, your cartilage is all fucked up, okay, and you go to move that knee in a way it doesn't like, and there's pain, um, those receptors are going to send a signal to your brain, and, and conversely to the musculature around it, and you're going to tense up, or you're going to have restricted range of motion. Um, so it's that same concept, you're just using it in a positive manner and kind of in reverse. That's interesting. How, how long ago did this come on your radar? When did you start implementing this into your life as an athlete? Um, so the Bradenko method, which is more of, um, and there's so much to go into this stuff, but is that kind of water and land-based training, um, just moving in, in a hole. I was introduced to that my senior year in, in college. Um, I didn't perfect it. I didn't master it for a long time. Um, my first job after school was under one of the master trainers. That's why I moved to Cape Cod. Um, but there was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything competitively out at, at of school. So, you know, even though I was teaching young athletes and high school and college kids um, for myself, I, you know, Sometimes when you're a teacher and Kirk Brackett, you know this, sometimes you don't always practice what you preach. So for many years, like I, 
I practiced to a certain extent, but it wasn't till probably um, after my hip surgery in 2015 that I really sat down and said, you know, you really have to you know, take on these methods for yourself and reap the benefits of them. Um, and that's where, when you get introduced to these alternative methods that are not what you see in a regular gym, it's very hard to check your ego and one, trust in the process and reap the benefits from it. And it really takes for most people to be introduced to them is a serious injury because you get brought back so far and then you understand all these little things that matter. And, you know, performance isn't necessarily like you got to put in the hard work. That's a no brainer. But what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, we all have our own potential and it doesn't matter how many 400s I run. Like I'm only going to get so fast, you know, and it's more about let me not train my body, but let me condition my body to be the best body it can be, be the healthiest it can be, so I can train at my highest level and then perform at my highest level. And that's if you look at these methods, um, I like to look at things as a whole in principles rather than rules or ways, is this principles. And one of the biggest principles I have is looking at um, all the preparation as this big macro look of where there's three main components. There's a conditioning component, a training component, and then your recovery or rehab. And your training is, is in this sport, your running or your strength, um, your mountain running. Um, your conditioning is making sure that um, your body can function properly, making sure you're, you're doing, um, you know, for me, I'm going in the pool and, and doing the recovery work, um, making sure I can lunge with my knee to the ground, making sure my mechanics are proper so that I can run and I can train and I can prepare for a race. And the conditioning aspect is really probably 70% of my training. You know, then I spend, you know, 20% training specifically for a race or specifically running and then, you know, 10% on you know, recovering the body. And that's, that's something I think a lot of people miss, uh, especially being a new sport. Everybody just comes in and tries to bang their head against the wall and train as hard as they possibly can and think they're going to get faster. And it's like, it's not really the case. <laughs> so that, so that being said with the conditioning and training for the first, when I hurt my hip in 2015, had the surgery, um, until really last year, I didn't never really trained, you know, there was a little bit of running. I never was able to specifically prepare for a race. It was more about, you know, let me make sure my body's in the best condition it can so I can just get to race day and hammer as hard as I can and dump everything out on the course. You know? How would you um how would you describe the difference how in the way your body felt previous to like adopting your current training and recovery philosophies, uh like before and after? What would be the difference? How do you feel the difference? Um the most impactful is, you know, so really adopted and practice it. Um, a little before surgery, but after is the hips themselves is the pelvis and stability. So the, the first thing I ever noticed when I started training, um, doing a lot of the deep water pool work is I remember running and I was running fast and noticed that all of a sudden, like my posture was completely upright. My hips were tucked under my body. And I just felt like I was driving all the power from my hips rather than just kind of leaning forward and falling one foot after another. Um, and then, you know, moving after surgery, it's just, it's the hip control and mobility. Um, that's something that limited me in college playing basketball, limited me in high school playing football. Um, and it's probably, if I were to 
takeaway for any kid in high school, like what you have to do better at, it's that pelvis stability and be able to move your hips more appropriately through different ranges of motion. Like that is such a limiting factor for almost every athlete because um, in, improper, I guess, linear training, just relying on weightlifting um, or the specific sport training. And then, you know, the, the common culprit of, you know, sitting down in school for six hours a day, you know. Um, so if you can get a kid to open their hips up, develop a little bit more pelvic awareness and control, like that's a game changer no matter what you're doing for a sport. Where would you point people to start <laughs> their journey towards, you know, proper pelvic health and usefulness? Where, where should they start? So th that's the, that's the hardest, um, wall I've come to since, um, since becoming a coach and since, you know, becoming an athlete is that it's not easy. Like you need a coach to teach you essentially. Um, and it was very hard for me. I can teach someone in person and it's taken me five years to develop an online, like uh, routine introductory routine. When I first start working with a client that they develop the awareness around where their hips are, um, to actually get any benefits from the training. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of a hard answer, but again, I would probably point them to, um, the individual, uh, Taylor Cruz, Cruz Elite, um, just his, he does a very, it's his full-time job and he does a great job of sharing, um, a lot of information and content, um, that I don't put out there for people. Um, so it's a, it's a good, good point to start. And then, you know, you can only learn so much online, um, find a coach in your region, um, and a good coach, a good trainer, not just a, you know, a certified strength and conditioning coach, like, do your own research and try to find someone who understands the body and that, you know, the hips are your center of mass. And, um, you know, that's where your training needs to start. You know what I wondered it about as you're talking about this? So, you know how, you know, you got your runners, we'll call it like your runner's muscles, like your, mm -hmm. your piriformis and, uh, and all these other in the glutes and stuff. Do you feel like all that opens, opens up more and you're just able to control that movement based yeah. on the hip stability you know what i'm talking about yeah. so and that's what i'll say about you know when you adopt the training methodology that focuses on the hips one it's it, it's about awareness and there's not it's, it's the same thing as running mechanics like there's so many running drills out there that people say this is the best way to run you got to do this and it, it doesn't matter as long as you can teach someone awareness and introduce them to hey this is what your body's doing all right once you're aware of what it's doing, you're going to fix it on your own. Um, I think that's a, a big step, people. They're looking for an answer from someone else when we're the master of our, our own body. Um, and if you, uh, once you develop that awareness of like where your, your hips are sitting, you know, what's going on in your body, you can, you can self-fix anything. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. So Kirk and I and yourself, we all coach. That's our yeah. full-time occupation. And... I assume that we all get the same number one comment from athletes whenever they go and see a, a specialist about something in their body. The number one thing I always hear is they come back and say, hey, I really need to fix my, it might be cadence, it might be stride, it might be foot plant because my glutes aren't firing. That's all I hear. It's like the newest trendy thing is, you know, your glutes aren't firing, but I can fix that. And I, I want to, you clearly have a grasp on the body. What is your reaction to that kind of coverall phrase? Oh yeah, your glutes aren't firing. Well, that was the hardest thing. It was the glutes, it's the calves, it's this. Everybody came to me with whether it was, it was an injury or something 
they believe they needed to work on or something someone else told them they needed to work on. And that's I got to the point, I'm like, how the like how the hell do I fix this? Like I'm tired of like beating my head against the wall with clients and have them not aware of their body and thinking something wrong is wrong when it's not. So that's what I like any client I work with now, I put them through a 10 week program. I don't care where in the season it is. And it's just, it's if somewhere to look at it, they'd say it's a core program, but it's essentially of we're doing all this stuff with your pelvis to give you awareness of where it is. And by the end of it, they just, they've done it enough that they realize, Oh, this is where my hips are. Because, you know, when you look at these glute issues and whatnot, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, sitting down, having a tight anterior chain, having weak glutes. Well, all you got to do is spend time in, you know, um, having your, your pelvis in a proper position and all that kind of balances out on, on its own. Um, and that's, why you know, people, you're not going to fix it in a half hour of training a day, right? Um, when you're sitting for most people eight hours a day at work. So you, if you can teach them awareness and they're sitting properly and they're getting up and walking around the office properly with good um, pelvis position, you know, the pelvis is the center of everything. And if you can get a good equilibrium there, hopefully the rest of those things will balance out. And then we talk about, you know, the, the time in these positions is if they can get good awareness of the pelvis walking around and they can transition that to running, that becomes a game changer because running is, it's not super linear, but you're doing a very repetitive motion. And if your pelvis is in a, a tilted forward position, it's, you, you know, you're going to strain your glutes. You're going to, everything's going to be whack and you're just, you're never going to be able to come out of that. And that's like, I'll show you guys, this is the coolest thing I try to teach people right away with your pelvic position. Keep in mind as you do this, that uh, the, the audience yep, will see gonna, you. Yep, I'm going to describe what I'll show you guys. Okay. Um, if, if you were to stand, um, just vertical, standing up, okay, and if you take your hips, all right, and if you put your hands um, on the crest of your hips from the side, so um, just like uh, put your thumbs kind of round towards your butt, your fingertips around towards the front, just like you're grabbing your hips and your, your, your hands are parallel to the ground. Um, and you, what you want to do first is if you tilt your, your hips forward, almost like you're pushing your butt out behind you, Yep. And you lift your knee up in the air. You can only lift it so high. So I'm lift. I'm I'm pulling my knee up as high as I can right now. You guys can see it's below the the level of my hips. Okay. Now if you to take the so first you dumped your hips. You pushed your butt back. Dumped your hips forward. It's called an anterior tilt. If you do a posterior tilt, like you're squeezing your butt cheeks, all right, and tucking your hips underneath you. So your butt cheeks are squeezed. Your lower abs are squeezed which is what most, most of these coaches try to get you to do anyways to fix glute problems or any hip problem. And then we lift our knee up in the air. I have my knee almost up to my nipples, okay? Yeah. So when we look at training, that, that pelvis position, if you can teach that alone and get them to stabilize that with good lower abdominal strength, all right, good activation of your glutes, then at the very least, when that individual starts running, their stride is going to be that much longer um, on each step. And that alone, um, you know, maybe your 100-yard dash time might not improve or your 400 time might not improve. But as a runner, when you're running these races of, you know, hour plus in, in duration um, and you're taking thousands and thousands of steps, your economy is going to be a little better. Um, you're not going to fatigue as much. And hopefully you're going to be a little bit faster. Yeah, what people need to do is they know, need to go get the movie Without Limits the movie about Steve, Steve Prefontaine, and he meets his coach, Bill Bowerman, and Bill Bowerman 
tells him to do that exact thing. He goes, you always run with your butt sticking out yeah. like that. And then he tells him to pretend he's having sex and, <laughs> and thrust his pelvis forward, and that opens up his hips. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and every, this whole time I just keep thinking about that scene and without limits, Steve yeah. Prefontaine. It's, uh, you know, it, again, it, it's all about the hips. Everybody, you know, start with the feet, start with this stress. It, you know, if you just put your hips in the proper position and then teach someone to pick their feet up off the ground, like those two thing alone, they're going to start running a crap ton better. It's, that's what I think it, it's funny. Running has become this, um, this like mystic thing to master. And it's pretty simple. Like we're born with everything that we need to do to run beautifully we just have to get back to you know remembering that like we're capable of doing it and we can fix it ourselves so i i think i know the way where you would go with this but where what's your stance then on something like cadence or running form are, are you in the camp of you need to hit x cadence or your form needs to look like this or are you on the you need to optimize your cadence and your form for your structure i think it's uh it's going to be unique to whatever client where you're working with, you know, um, you know, I have a one client, uh, that we're working with who's, you know, he's a little, um, bummed because his keys look, he was comparing himself to my cadence and my cadence is a lot slower, but my stride length is massive compared to most athletes, my size, because I have good hip mechanics and I can drive through the back, um, through the back leg without over, over extent, over striding. Um, so I can get away when I get the speed to have a much lower cadence because I'm essentially bounding through the air. Now, someone with shorter legs or doesn't have that ability to um, derive that power, you know, they're going to have to have a faster cadence in order to run at a faster clip. You know, it's it's one of those things like each each client's legs are different sizes and it's it's a tool. You know, it's it's we can use it and see. All right, is your you know, based on the cadence, are you running the, the paces that you should be able to? If you're not like, all right, well, if your cadence really fit is fast, you're not running as fast as you really should be able to. All right. So now we have to look at, um, you know, to get more power, getting more stride length. You know, if the cadence, if your cadence is really slow, um, you know, maybe your stride length is too long. You know, it's just, it's balancing it out for each client and working with them on an individual basis. You know, that's what, I hate people who try to put together like generalized programs and these training routines to work. It just everybody's um, their own person. And, you know, that's what, like with my coaching platform, it's about getting to know each one of the clients. And like, I'm frankly, I think I'm a horrible programmer. Like I'm not the best at it, but I'm very good at working with people and, and, and talking with them and finding out their weaknesses and working with them to figure out, all right, what do we have to do to make you the, you know, the best athlete you can be. I do want to talk about programming, but before we get there, uh, th this cadence thing had just came up. I received five messages <laughs> in the last 48 hours about what's your take on 180 um, steps per minute or oh, my cadence looks too slow. So just as a, as a, an assignment for myself, I went back and I looked at Alabama and the Florida races from last year on Strava, and then Florida from this year. And I looked at everyone in the top 10's cadence on Strava. And what I found is that it was between 163 and 196 average for the entire race. Some yeah. people maxed at 202, some maxed at 196, some people maxed at like 234 at different points of the race. But there was a 30 step per minute gap amongst the first through 10th people, and there was no semblance of 
of, of a correlation between what your cadence was and what place you took. Yeah, it, it doesn't really matter. And you have to do, like I was, uh, we're in Utah and DJ and I were doing um, this, this photo shoot video thing. And I had been doing it for a while, so I was kind of tired and he was just jumping on board and we had to do this thing running up like the access road. And it's the first time I really ran next to him. And you know, my feet have to move twice the speed of his, you know, his, his hips are so high and he's got such long legs, you know, obviously like if we ran the same cadence, I would never run as fast as him. It wouldn't be possible. It's not like, it's literally not physically possible to do that. So I have to have a higher cadence in him. And that's, you know, each of our bodies are unique. And as long as, you know, as long as your form's good and you're fluent and you feel good and you're, you're running a good clip, like it doesn't really matter. It's a good tool though. You know, that's the one thing we can't, I guess the whole point of this all is all, all these metrics, whether it's heart rate or pacing or it's cadences, they're not the rule. They're just a tool that we can use to look like, I like to tell people like, let's, let's not worry about it most of the time when we're running, but let's collect those metrics and look back and then, you know, try to adjust moving forward. Exactly. I think too many people get so caught up and way too caught up in heart rate, way too caught up in pacing when, especially for our sport, you know, it's, there's too many variables at play, like with, with obstacles and changing and pacing, you know, road running and, and most endurance sports, they're, you know, zone one, two, and three, they're masters of efficiency. You know, we're masters of zones two, three, four, five, and 10, you know, of just hammering all the time and be able to recover from that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, run at these different paces. And it's just not, um, I wish one of us could come up with some sort of 40 year old, 40 yard dash, some sort of training metric that would define our physiological, um, metric that would define why we are good at this sport. Um, because each one of us are, are good at it for a unique reason. And, uh, it's just, we've nice to say like, this is why we're good at this and why a marathoner can't come in and they're not good at it. That, that the Spartan Combine tried that, right? Yeah. And I was I was on that board. I was on the people that developed the Combine to try to find something that you could use. You could put a thousand athletes through it and you could predict who the 10 best Spartan racers would be. Yeah. And you know what I came to the conclusion of after two weeks of working? I mean, I knew after two hours, but after two weeks, I just came to the conclusion that it's impossible. If you want to know who the best is, probably send them out for a 60 minute time trial and then mm -hmm. send them up a six mile climb. And then have them do some sort of really high intensity circuit. And the guy who does the best at all three is probably going to be, do the best, but there's nothing we can test in a minute. No. And it's especially when it comes to a race, because I, you know, I've been using a power meter to try to um, gauge my efforts in the tactical running a little bit more. Um, and I find that it's kind of a cool tool, but you can gather all the metrics you want. But when it comes down to race day, like we forget about this one quality called grit, like, with going in the mud and and because we have a true race where there's changing in positions and you're failing obstacles and you're messing things up like there's that's a huge factor is kind of that mental toughness to be able to push through things and you know run a good race and if you you don't have that quality i don't care how fit you are like you're not going to perform to your absolute potential and uh, I, I, I feel comfortable about this because I just talked to him about this. I was just talking to Johnny Linalima about this. The kid's a freak athlete. And, like, he blew everybody away last year in Big Bear as well as Utah. Um, but those two courses were straight up and straight down, essentially. And they're long enough that 
basically the fittest person was going to win. And, you know, even if you look at Jacksonville, his splits, um, him and I had were actually uh, dead even of the fastest splits on every single running section. Um, he just hasn't raced enough in his career to figure out, like, maybe that toughness or just, like, race strategy and, and how to compete when it comes to race day. Like, he's figured out how to be fit. Like, he's he's a monster. And he's got to figure out that next component. And that would be scary. But that's that's probably why most of these runners and trail runners and mountain runners, when they come in, they have a really hard time besides, you know, crumpling under the weight or the obstacles. It's, it's a different style of racing. Yeah. You're talking about all those intangibles that we can talk about how many measurements of fitness can we try to predict how people are going to perform in these intangibles like grit and mental toughness and tenacity. And something that I think you actually did really well, Ryan is without in hindsight is you raced a shitload when you first got into the, you guys were, you and your brother were racing all the time. You were, you know what? And, but like that served a huge purpose because just as you touched on like Johnny Luna Lima, who hasn't raced as much, like you've learned so much out on the battlefield, right? That you can then, you can put your new fitness together, your new training philosophies, the experience you've had yeah. tackling it all and you mash it together. And then suddenly you have a breakthrough season. Like in mm-hmm. hindsight, it all makes sense, yeah. right? I mean, I was fortunate enough living in the Northeast. We have so many darn races. Mm-hmm. That like I can with driving four hours, I can hit. I think I think it's something like twelve races a year. You know, it's, it's an unfair advantage. It is a very very unfair advantage. Training but, basically, I would say. <laughs> but that experience is good. Like over the years, I learned how to when I wasn't fit. I learned how to run in you know eighth, ninth, tenth place. And as I got fitter, I learned how to I learned how to lead a race from the beginning. And it, it's given me a um, an understanding of of how to compete um, and how to strategize based on the, the competition I'm going against. Tell me, tell me this. So I jumped into this sport in 2016. I think I did the U S national series in 2017 for the first time. And I can count a handful of races in which you went out ballsy as hell. <laughs> and dude, dude, I admire that. I really do. But I mean, and I, came blowing by you two thirds into the race and you're, you had played all your cards, right? You're, (laughs) you were, you were out of chips. Okay. Um, what the heck changed from those days? I mean, we went, I remember coming by you in a West Virginia course, I think it was 2017 and you might as well have been walking. There were two or three miles left. I was, that was the darkest place. I was, (laughs) I, I, I get, I think we're 12 miles in cause that was a long, that was like a 15 mile race. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And, I bonked so hard. I mean, like it's a, I'm pretty tough. Like I literally got to the point where I just went to ground zero and then I try to get up and run again and my legs weren't working and yeah. I stop and I try to go again. And to a point where I just literally collapse on the side of, I mean, I'm a, I'm both anemic and have low blood sugar. So not only like was my fuel reserves gone when I get to that zone, like my body doesn't, function very well at all it almost goes into shock like, um yeah. well i guess well yeah i so i witnessed that once or so twice. I, all right so what's changed is just be healthy like um I, each year i've increased my training volume by uh, by close to by close to doubling it each year okay you know when i first started uh came off hip surgery i think i had a couple races in 2015 i had a beach loop on this like uh, next to my house or go out to the water and run. It was two miles. I did that twice a week, 2015. 2016, I would max out at 17 miles a week, okay? 
uh, and this is on like three or four runs a week. Okay. Um, 2017, that kind of started building up. Um, you know, I think my max was, I, I don't know, 24 miles a week. And then, you know, starting really last year is when I could start putting in the volume to, um, it wasn't, it's not enough to match like an Atkins or a Woods, but it was enough to prepare me for these races. And it, when I first started racing, I um, honestly, the best way to put it is I just thought I was as good as everybody else. You know, I don't know if it's cockiness or it's arrogance, but I just saw what I just, I know this sounds kind of conceited, but I didn't see anybody. I didn't see you Bracken as being special. I didn't see Kirk as being special. I didn't see Atkins as being special more than me. I thought I was fully capable of doing everything you guys did because I had this athletic background. I just had to find a way to become an endurance athlete. And it's just, it's taking a long time. And I'm still about like last year, I capped the year and my training volume with elevation gain miles time was still about 40% below what like a Woods or an Atkins puts in. So I knew as I kept, you know, becoming consistent in training and matching the volume of what they're capable of doing, I was going to be able to race. But going back to your question, Kirk, is when I first started, I had, I didn't care about finishing in the series. I didn't care about 10th place. Like I just wanted to find out how to win one of these damn races. And I was going to go out and bang my head against the wall, run as hard as I could, as long as I could. And, you know, keep doing it until I got to the point where I could do it for a full race. You know? It's, it, it's exactly what I was, I was talking with an athlete of mine last week. We were talking about what you can do in racing to ruin other people's races. And I told yeah. them the single worst person to race against, the hardest person to race against, is the athlete who does not care about blowing up. Yeah. Who has no fear of hurting during a race and is willing to hurt themselves to hurt you. Mm -hmm. And that's something we saw early on racing you. I had the same experience as Kirk, where <laughs> I blew you away in your first couple of years and you'd lead and I'd scoff at you and then I'd move past you all mm -hmm. like cocky later on. And then we met in Miami one year and you were running like you normally do, but it looked easier than I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you remember the race. It was like December, yeah. January. It was hot. It was flat. And like half mile in, I thought... I'm working harder than he is today. This, this is not good for me or for our sport because I, suddenly the writing on the wall was there. Like He's not that, that feisty, cocky little kid who's going to blow up. He's now the feisty, cocky, athlete, uh, distant athlete who's going to force us to blow up. And that's what happened that day. You just you ran me yeah. out of the water, and then that next season you burst onto the scene. But yeah. the same qualities were there than are there now, which yeah. is I don't mind hurting because it's going to hurt you yeah. and I don't mind blowing up. So I will race to win rather than race not to lose. Yeah. So, and that's, that gets me to two really important points is, you know, how I was able to get to that point And I guess continued progression of success is that each year or, or each segment of the season, I never, um, I never picked out I'm going to run this race to win this race besides like the local races. When I entered into the bigger races, I picked athletes to beat and I trained to beat that athlete. So the first athlete that took me three fucking years to beat is my brother. Like <laughs> he was the first one on the totem pole. And once I beat him, I moved on 
um, that year in Miami, Bracken, you're the one that I started looking at what you're doing for training. Like, how am I going to beat this guy that's pretty fluent and pretty fast? And then, like, last year it was when I went into the season, the only thing I wanted to do was, you know, especially with Jacksonville, is find a way to beat Woods. If I could beat Woods, I'm probably going to be on the podium, you know. And then, you know, now it's at a point where, um, you know, later in the year, Utah, after Utah, uh, Johnny whooped her ass in the downhill, and especially in Big Bear, I started hammering downhill to beat Johnny in the downhill race. And when you break, when you focus on one little quality at a time, you just, you get this massive foundation and it allows you to keep building off that and building off that. And that's probably, probably my best quality. I don't think I'm a, like a physical specimen by any means, but I, I have an obsessive quality about myself to obsess over skill sets. It's why I became really good at basketball. I obsessed becoming the best shooter I could possibly could be and doing the research. And for this sport, I just, it started with becoming a good, good runner. And then, you know, it's, you know, right now Atkins, what my ass in the carry is like, you bet your ass I'm going to find by the next couple races that I'm going to be able to run or even maybe get to the point where maybe I can break him in a race in one of the carries. Like, that's going to be a hard fucking task, but you know, but that's, you know, you got to peak when I work with the clients as well. Like we pick those limiters of like what you got to work on. And, and, and then when we, I hate when people have podium goals, it's like not a realistic goal in this race, in this sport, because people, different people show up, the race is different is you got to pick who you can race again and find a way to beat them. And once you can beat them, move on to the next person and then just keep yep. going down the list. What's a testament to what you just said is I remember looking at the the national series Utah splits and the Strava mm-hmm. segments and there was only one man that was close to Johnny Luna Lima's descent on that mountain it wasn't Ryan Atkins it was you <laughs> it was you you and Johnny Luna Lima descended everybody and uh, I mean I think you had descended Atkins by like even a minute and yeah, he's a like, great descender it was like forty seconds um, so so you weren't lying to us about <laughs> when you when you put your mind to a skill set you go and you hammer that and then once you have that card in your deck. You file it in there, you keep it there, and then yeah. you work on the next. You know, and that's a big uh, conversation I have with a lot of clients is a lot of people try to work on everything all at the same time, and they they don't have faith and they don't trust that if you refine a skill, that skill set is going to stay with you for a long time. And Bracken, even if you sharpen up your speed, as long as you like hit it once in a while, like that speed stays with you for quite a long time, and you work on something else next. Yeah, yeah, we we. we I always talk about it like a sword, like you have to work on your dull edge. And if you mm-hmm. just polish that strong, <laughs> sharp edge once a week, once every other week, or just a couple days in a row right before battle, that edge is sharp. But you always have to, like Kirk and I talked about it on the last episode, OCR exposes your lowest skill set. Yeah. It rewards high skill sets, but it always exposes your lowest. And you can't afford to have glaring low skill sets. And I think it's really refreshing that you talk about identifying and focusing on other athletes because I'm obsessed about who I'm racing, not what I'm racing. And you hear all the time, like, you should do it for the love of the sport or you have to be out there having fun. And I just think that that's great for open waivers. But I think if you're competitive, you can't necessarily be having too much fun out there because unless you really enjoy pain that much, but you have to be obsessed. You have to have people on your wall. Otherwise, you're going to lose to those people. That's why I got so rocked in Jacksonville. I wasn't expecting Atkins to be able to run with any of us. Like he really, like he really messed up my day as far as strategy. Like I was ready to go in. I knew he would be there, 
but I thought he was going to be coming from where Woods was and trying to hunt us down. And he, where he broke me was after the spear throw, and I caught up to him. And I, I mean, I hit like a 450 pace on that straightaway, and I passed him, and he stayed with me. And it just that was, I mean, it was a great race try. I think he knew at that point he was going to have me anyways. But when I couldn't put any time on him on that straightaway like that, I was just like, oh shit, like. I just burnt myself out catching him. Now we have a long carry. Like this is going to be hell from here. <laughs> you know his his racing acumen is high though, and if you look yeah. at what he's been doing this year versus last year, he came into this race. He trained guaranteed you his lead up into Jacksonville this year was probably if not oh, not a one eighty a, a ninety degree difference from what he was doing last year leading. Yeah. And he knew what he was getting into. Yeah. You look at what he's been doing. Yeah, so, he knew this. He knew Kempson was coming. <laughs> you know, I well, didn't you're responsible. Honestly, yeah. you're responsible for people being fit this spring. Yeah, way to go, Ryan. Because <laughs> you came in last year and did that to everyone, and you showed them what happens if you're not fast and if you're not really hungry for the first race. And you also showed people that it's possible to sneak in when other people might be thinking about mountains to show up ready to hurt that day. And so mm -hmm. it's your fault that everyone <laughs> – that's it. It was so cool looking at the segments and splits. Like there was nobody who ran slow in that race. Like whether it was the fifteenth, like fifteenth all the way up through first, everybody is hitting like a low five, maybe sub five pace at some point. And it just like I, I think that going into last year, that was the big chin check I took was just understanding that I'm not the best at this. I'm not the best at this. Like we're all real fucking good at everything, and it's the person that really puts in that little extra effort to become the best of the best at it is what's going to separate us in, in one of these races. You know? Yeah. The red, the readiness of the field this year in Jacksonville, it wasn't even like the same player. It's like the di whole different lineup showed up because last year, everybody was really kind of scoffing at the fact that we had to race in February. It was the first time they bumped the season up that early. Everybody said, I'm going to slow play mm -hmm. this and I'm just going to settle in early and throw my, you know, wave my white flag and I'll work into it. And this year, everybody came yeah. out like, this is an A race, and it's in February, and I'm going to show up. And you could feel it out there. Like, when we were racing, the grittiness of that race compared to the grittiness of Jacksonville, um, at least in the, the back end of the top 10, like, completely different race. So this is, like, leading into all the drama that happened before the season. Um, I don't care what Spartan does or how they do it, but this is where I believe the top 10 athletes, they need to find a way to give them a base um, – we'll call it a base salary so that you have 10 athletes going to each one of these championship series races, putting a hundred percent of their effort into the race. And then you can have amazing things like me and woods battling it at the end, or who is it? Leanne and uh, Natalie. Oh my God, Natalie battling at the end. Like that's what separates a lot of these athletes is the one who can put a full-time effort into it. And the one who doesn't like, I'm sorry, if you're not doing this almost full time, you're not going to beat Atkins. Like there's no way around it. Like he's just, he's going to beat everybody. Like Woods gets away with having a job because he, he owns his own business and he has a flexible time and he's been running for 25, 30 years. But man, if they could find a way, I don't care how they do it. Like I'm not complaining about it, but if they can figure out a way to get some money to the top 10 athletes to allow them like not to make money, but just so that they can put the time into training, like it would be so much more exciting. And they're going to be able to sell sponsors off that like NTV time. Like that'd be, that'd be so cool. In their best interest would probably be to have about 
an eight race series and they're all sprints and they're all tight <laughs> and they're all and they're all just gritty and aggressive. Do you know what I mean? Just because yeah. of, like the push for the stadium races and how well, those are so appealing. You know, that that's what I relate it to is um I try to take it from is is kite surfing. All right. Kite surfing is one of that's I do that for fun, but that's kind of where I'm referring it to. It it blew up in the past 20 years. Probably fast it blew up and surpassed surfing. It like bigger than most sports. And it's because it has this massive wow factor of people boosting 20, 30, 40 feet in the air. Like there's a wow factor. So like if our sport's gonna grow, like what is the wow factor? And I'm with you, Kirk, that a lot of it is these short fast intense races i don't think stadium because it doesn't have them i think you need something that's muddy and brutal and like just has that grit but at the same time there's part of me that thinks like you know part of the wow factor is even though you can't they'll have to find a better way of um of portraying it in video is climbing up a mountain and that grit and toughness like I mean, that's what's so attractive about a marathon, one that people can participate, but it's 26 miles. Like, that's an amazing thing. Like, I accomplished something. And and most people watch it or are interested or envy, like, someone who did a marathon because they can't do it themselves. And I think that could be a massive wow factor and probably is a big wow factor for our sport is going through the mud and barbed wire and being gritty and messy and conquering this massive mountain. Like, that you know if they find a better way of of showcasing that in some of these videos rather than just watching someone kind of run up a mountain for 20 minutes like i think that would would turn a lot of eyes to it as well but i think and i think you both said it it's when you're not alone it's yeah. when you have 20 guys coming up the same climb mm-hmm. and to your point Ryan the only way you're ever going to have 20 guys in a pack is if you have 20 guys putting in 20 hours per week of training yeah because otherwise it's who lives in the South and got to, or the, you know, <laughs> that didn't have snow to contend with and, or who, who didn't have to work 40 hour weeks and who, who got their time in on the mountains before Big Bear. Last year, three people were ready to run up the mountain and two were ready yeah. to run down the mountain. And, and that was, that was my big issue with um, the relationship with Spartan is that like, I have all these sponsors that we have a great relationship and, you know, they're not paying me for my worth as a social media influencer or being this big, sexy guy with big muscles. Cause I'm not, Hello. you know, we have a relationship where, you know, they're trying to help me become the best athlete I can be. So I can put in the time and, and match what Atkins does. And, you know, then you get to the problems. Like I got to Spartan race and they're like the biggest player in the game and they benefit from me being good and you being good. And they weren't willing to help me, train essentially and put in the time and that's like i hate going down this i don't know how we got to this point but like i don't care what their budget is what they're doing with it um why they're doing it i just i just get upset that they're not willing to support um you know some of the top athletes to help them grow as well you know and that's it's that's like it's a personal it's not a personal i hate you thing it's just a personal like man, you like, you don't really care about us. Wow. Wow. Type of thing. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. You know, so anyways, enough about that bullshit. I had a, I had a question. So we, you just brought up, like you'd bring it up, like putting in, taking the amount of time to mm-hmm. like train and maybe being a full-time athlete. And that's what can help bring you to the next level. A lot of our listeners are like age group athletes, open athletes, things like that. And um, a word that keeps coming to mind when I think of you, you may not agree with me is patient over the years. <laughs> Because I know you're going to disagree, but 
No, I'm not actually. You're not. Okay. Well, well, it's just like a theme I keep wanting to talk about with you because you were talking about I ran 17 miles a week at a peak one year, and then I ran 24 miles a week as peak the next year. And I bet your ass you could have run more at that time, but you were playing the long game. You were playing the patient and the smart high acumen game, right? Do you, and you can't necessarily jump into 20 hours of training a week and be running next to Ryan Kempson next, you know, in July, there's some regimen and, you know, patience with this, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. You know, it's, um, enlighten me, right. If you were to take me back to the day after my hip surgery and told me it was going to take me four years to get to where I want it to be. I don't know if I would have gone down this journey again, <laughs> honestly. Um, it was long and it's taken a lot of patience, but we'll go back to my training principles of the conditioning, the training and the recovery. Um, I just, when you have something to focus on to improve or a skill set to improve on, um, being patient just isn't even a, a variable. It's just, it is what it is. So I just, I was fortunate enough to be introduced and develop the awareness of, of, of different limiters I had from hip mobility to core strength to overall strength that I just took that one stage at a time and, you know, just focused on developing those over the years. And because I had a focus and a task at hand, and I believed that that was going to make me a better racer, it allowed me to be patient. Um, and, and kind of circle this back around to getting to race day. Um, I've always been confident and like one of my main principles is that, you know, especially with tapering, people try to stay really sharp for races. I've never had that mentality. I believe we talked about that grit and toughness that these types of races isn't necessarily about being super sharp, but it's being the freshest and having a deep enough tank and a deep enough well to dig down into come race day and be able to empty that to the absolute, like literally just dump it all out there and get the most, the highest performance you possibly could out of your body. Um, and that's like, I still, I, I'm so, so many steps behind Atkins and Woods and many of the other top athletes if on most race days, but I'm very good at getting myself to the race start and having that one out of 10, 10 races that I'm going to put everything on the line and dump it out there. So from the start, like that was always my focus. Like people get too wrapped up in, I got to run really fast now. I got to do this for training and overload themselves. And you kind of hit a wall and it becomes very hard to be patient. But I, you know, I focused on, you know, do the things that matter and have confidence. If I'm fresh for a race, essentially I'm going to be able to outperform my training and have the best race performance. Like, if you, I mean, I'm sure you guys looked at my Strava and stuff. I don't run nearly as fast as half of you guys or as much as you. Um, but when it comes race day, if you look at my splits on race day, I'm going to be able to, I can run a lot faster on that day just because my legs are fresh and ready to roll. And what I'll say about that too is that's also coming not from running. Like that was the biggest benefit of not being an endurance athlete is I had to attack it from a different angle and I wasn't, um, my, my theories and thoughts on racing and preparing, um, I was able to think from outside the box, which, you know, thinking outside the box is really where the game changes happen in, in, in any discipline. If you can 
extract yourself from that. So now we're getting to it, right? Are we, are we <laughs> approaching territory that you are close to the vest? Or is this something that you're outside the box, how you prepared for racing from a different perspective? Is that something you're willing to talk about? Yeah, I'll talk about everything. Yeah. I don't know if everybody's going to understand what I'm talking about. But. Right, we can let them sort that out. I, 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 I don't want to speak for you, but I've from day one been interested to know what someone who didn't grow up with my upbringing and mindset and education did with their own running yeah. to get to the point where you're So at. the one thing I want to preface, guys, is that I, you know, I will play the card of not coming from running, but when I, when I grew up, when I played sports, I was always the kid that could had the best endurance on my sports team. I was on a fitness team in like fifth and sixth grade and had the fastest mile in the state. Like I had, I probably was a better endurance athlete than, you know, my childhood led to believe. Um, but I still didn't come from running. Most of that comes from, um, my childhood. I grew up in Vermont. Okay. Like literally Matt and I, like we just grew up in the woods. Our house is literally on the mountainside. We didn't live in the flat. We were outside literally all day long. Um, and that was a, you know, a big base to becoming why when we got to Spartan race, like our first race, we're like, shit, this is literally what we did as kids. Like these obstacles aren't hard. We ran around in the woods, like we crawled in the mud. It wasn't a big deal. Um, and that set up, you know, the base to, to form a methodology to, to build on. And really the only, the one athlete you could probably tie that to the closest is Atkins with the way he trains of just being, you know, an overall really good athlete and then finding a way to become a very good racer. So I wanted to preface that and just make sure people don't, they don't think like I'm not coming from nowhere with no talent. There was a little bit of a talent pool there that I was able to draw from. But you started feeding that. You started feeding that talent significantly yeah. later. Yeah. Out of respect yeah. to you, I want to clarify that I didn't mean you came from nothing. I meant you came from not being taught habits in the running world. Yeah. So you got to formulate your own methodology, and I'm very curious about your methodology. Um, so, you know, it's so hard to explain, but it goes back to those principles of the, the Berdanko method I practice and all the other conditioning is that go back to there's a conditioning component, there's a training component, and there's a recovery component. Okay. You know, I first make sure my body, like if I'm not feeling good, good that day, I don't run at all, like whatsoever. Okay. Um, I make sure my body is a hundred percent condition. It's hundred percent recovered so that when I run, I can run really well. Um, so, and again, when we get to, you know, race day, like I can, I can dump my highest performance into, to racing. All right. Um, to talk about the condition and recovery, you know, I talk about the joint mo movements I do in the morning, and whatnot. But one of the biggest principles is um, um, our methods is the deep water training. The you know most people refer to as aqua jogging, um, and that's like aqua jog is only part of it. Like so, when you're in the water, the benefits of being in deep water with a flotation belt, all right, like an old lady in, you know, aqua, aqua exercise class or whatever is, is first you're unloading the body. Okay. So we pound our joints, we pound our body all the freaking time. And it's especially running and it's important to deload. Like there's, it's the only environment you're in that there's zero gravity on your body. All right. Unless you're in one of those uh, deprivation tanks or like a zero G running um, treadmill. Um, second is we talk about compression. We all know compression is important for, we can get some recovery, some circulation, whether it's from, 
you know, you can get it from tights or compression boots or um, our e-stim. When you're in the water, um, there is a hydrostatic pressure, right? So the deeper you go, there's more pressure. So when you're standing vertical in the water, um, it's kind of like a, a natural um, stimulus to improve circulation throughout the body. All right, so you're basically the the more things move around in the body as far as fluid, the faster your body recovers. Okay, so again, um, we get uh, unload the body, increase circulation, both help and recovery. And then because in the water there's nothing solid, we don't have our feet on the ground, our hands or anything. The the control and the movement comes from your hips, and that's it. Okay, so when we talk about Developing awareness around your pelvis, getting strength from it, which is exactly what running is. When you're in the water doing different exercises, prone, supine, change in direction, it's all coming from your pelvis. And that in turn allows you okay, to translate to that awareness on land and developing um, much greater, greater pelvis strength. Um, so that's like the conditioning recovery component. You know, without that, I don't think I could run with any of you guys, right? I wouldn't be able to maximize my training and recover at a higher rate and put in the volume I need to do in order to, to perform at the level I need to. So that's the conditioning component. And having that base and, and understanding um, that makes a difference on race day really is what led to everything else I do for training. Um, and this is where I like, it's more about the principles of just understanding is make sure your conditioning is good so that you can train as hard as you can. Okay. When you understand these little things work, then you can, it's like I said, you're thinking outside of the box and it allows you to um, find what works for training and come from a different perspective. I'm not wrapped up in paces on the track. Okay. So that allows me to develop the outside perspective. Now we start looking into like, okay, what does he do for training? Like, why do I get fast? Uh, it's because I'm not concerned about the different, like you come from running, both of you guys come from running. So at the back of your mind, there's always a concern of, of metrics and pacing and making sure you're hitting those paces. Like, I don't care about that stuff. Most, like I do some interval stuff, some speed work, but almost all my runs, even when I do speed work is on the trails in the woods, because when you have that change of direction and the uneven terrain, it's not just about becoming a good technical runner. It's about developing power. Like every step you have to develop more and more power and you become a stronger runners. And that is for the running aspect of it in our sport. Like that's a real secret is becoming powerful and beyond to accelerate. Um, so I try to explain to clients is like for, um, you know, a road runner to come into, say a marathoner to come into our sport. Um, how many times do, we, do they accelerate in a race really? once like they start the race they accelerate and you know maybe their pace changes a little bit but that's it their body only needs the power to accelerate once and then it's just like their cardiovascular system making sure they're efficient for 26 miles our sport it's stop and go how many times it's at least 25 with obstacles okay and that doesn't factor in turning so and then that's why i believe mountain runners probably have had the um translate it to better performance in the sport to start with because they develop so much power of running up a mountain and they have the ability to accelerate on each step. Um, and the same thing is uh, other sports steeplechasers. They seem to do very well, right? And that's because they had to, they have, have to have a, a semblance of power with jumping and changing paces. And that's allowed them to get in the sport. So it, 
having that non-background in running allowed me to identify the things I needed to be good at for running in the sport. And that was probably the biggest game changer as far as, you know, not having that governor saying, hey, no, 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 you got to get off the trail today. You have to go hit those paces or you have to go hit, you know, whatever whatever track workouts have got you to like what that got you guys fast when you were, you know, racing in college, you know, that's just your, your mind's conditioned to handle that. Like that's what you've been taught for years, right? Like it's, it's hard to get out of that. And so it's almost like, I almost have an advantage over everybody else that I can look at this from a different perspective. Kempson, did you listen to our last podcast and just steal our information? <laughs> Maybe. No, I don't think so. No, we're, we're recording on a Friday for the following week, and we just released our podcast today. Uh, and we talked about <laughs> literally that exact same thing in our takeaways from Jacksonville being yeah. the power is is king over speed yeah. and metrics and the acceleration and deceleration. So it's just funny you hounded on that when we – I literally have just, uh, we're discussing the same sort of takeaways from Jacksonville. Um, yeah, so we're like minds, man. Um, I had a question for you. As you were bringing up uh, conditioning and recovery, let's just say you put 20 hours a week into your physical being and prepping for Spartan mm -hmm. races. I know there's probably some mental side of it too that you're training, but out of that 20 hours, you know, you're, you're running and everything else. What, how many of those hours are actually actively spent Focus on recovering, conditioning versus training. I'll break it down like this. So it's yeah, about, it about forty-five minutes to an hour each day in the morning doing the the, the mobility work. So that's I'm already at seven hours of that. Um, I'm spending like what, right now my pool is actually closed, so it's been but I'll probably spend another five hours in the pool. Okay, so now you're at twelve hours a week alone on um, just in recovery, and that doesn't include you know my warm ups of twenty minutes before I run and my cool downs. You know, so it's probably another four hours a week, seventeen hours a week, just on the little things. Um, and then one of the other method, uh, things I practice is uh, Bikram or hot yoga. They call it now twenty six plus two, which is an hour and a half of uh, one hundred and five degrees and eighty percent humidity. Um, which I do that two to three times a week. So it's like, I know it sounds like a ridiculous number, but it's close to 20 hours of this like physical prep recovery work. Um, and that's, you know, that's when I talk with clients, you know, that's the limiting factor with a lot of people of, you know, are you spending that time taking care of your body itself to be, you know, the, the, the best physical specimen that, that you can be. Um, and if you're not, it's, going to be really hard to compete with someone who does do that you know um so that's what i say i don't think like myself as an athlete i don't think i'm like the most gifted i think probably atkins is probably the most gifted in the sport but i think i may be able to to squeeze every last bit of performance out of my body in, in relation to everybody else in the field and that's like I, I i teach a lot of young kids and i'm more of a mentor towards them than a coach as we we try to teach them, develop awareness of their body, proper training methods. And it's especially with social media and video these days is you always see the guy grinding and squatting in the gym and getting up at 5 a.m. and doing this and that. And like that stuff matters and it builds toughness and, you know, being strong is important. But like for an Olympic athlete, they don't show that Olympic athlete, you know, spending a half hour figuring out what they're eating in the morning and doing the yoga after doing the, their 30 minutes of warming their body up before they're hitting that track workout really hard. Like those little things matter more because 
they allow you to be consistent, you know? And if you, like, you guys all know, so, like, as soon as you get an injury, like, shit sucks. Like, you just, you're not consistent. You're not going to be fit. And the problem in our sport, it, you can't avoid injuries. You just can minimize them because we, what we do is so tough and grueling and we race so damn much. It's another big problem. <laughs> um, like, we're always going to have a little nicks, bruises, and sprains and, like it's really about someone who like if you can manage those and making sure your consistent cons- your training stays consistent and your health stays consistent it allows you to perform at a little bit higher level that's this is all gold seriously this this episode is going to be long yeah i know it is and i hope like but it's all gold I, it is but it, you know it's very hard to art- articulate all this and that's like for me every time you ask me a question there's like there's just so many rabbit holes you can go down because it's not there's not one answer. Everybody looks for an answer and there's no answer. And it, that's why it's very hard to describe my training. Like mm-hmm. and the, the best way to describe it is I try to take care of my body and then, then figure out how to race. Like I, I think that's something, the biggest thing I've learned outside of taking care of my body and I've been able to take from you, Bracken and Kirk and Atkins and everybody else is that how do I prepare specifically for a race? Like, what elevation do I need to run in a week? Like what type of paces do I have to run? Um, I think that's something some athletes, even in like the top 10 overlook sometimes. Like it's not just about being fit. It's like, you know, about hammering that one race. And I think the one athlete has probably, probably been the greatest at it is probably Hunter. Like I have to say, I have to, I think Hobie definitely taught him, but if you look at Hunter's body type and frankly, he was never really good at obstacles. Like he's not like a stud at that or any means, but he was able to, and he's never done the series. He just always picked a race that he could, he wanted to crush and he figured out what it took to win that race. You know, he's a master at preparing for the test. Yeah. So I, he's smarter than he leads on. uh, He's, it's it's ridiculous. (laughs) He's much more studied than he leads on. And Ryan, he he shares similarities with you in that he came from a multifaceted background that wasn't necessarily just running. And he has the ability to pull fluff out and replace it with truths that he knows to be true. And he he trains a little different than some people do, but it's all based in real principles that he applies correctly to each competition style. And that's, you know... I don't put myself on their level by any means, um, but I think it, <laughs> not yet. We'll see. Is I think if I were to not my personality, but um, maybe the driving engine of and what my mind does when it comes race day, probably probably aligns very similar to Hunter and Atkins, and I think those two are very similar with the ability to um, like get, dig deep and just dump everything out to a course. Um, it's I, I I don't know I I didn't wouldn't say we're I'm tougher or anything but it's just a it's it's a, I think it's an obsession to strive for something great like I go back to my um uh, my skill of obsessing over skills um, and skill sets and becoming a master at them um, when it comes to racing like it's not that I love to win like I think people mistake that sometimes like. I was was thinking about this a couple months ago. I'm like, why do I really race? It's not about being the best or winning. Like that's obviously some motivation, and you know, winning money's nice, and having a career is awesome. But it's because guys, the honest truth is, like, I don't love obstacle course racing. Like, 
I love kite surfing and skiing and being outside. Like I love outdoor things. Um, I do love racing though. And I love what it creates for me. It's, it becomes a motivator for me to strive to be greatest. And that striving is something I, I, I'm sure we all share. But for me, I think I obsess over it like way too much. And I think it's what's allowed me to, to, to keep getting better. You know, that, that strive is, I think, what promotes greatness. And I, don't, I think the strive and mix with consistency over years. And that's what's made Hunter great. It's what made Acton, Atkins great is that we all have that strive, but can we maintain consistency? And that's like my next goal is one, to be good at the mountains, but is to be able to, you know, run the national series and compete for the win, not just for a podium, but to, to win it, you know, and, and to show up to, to Norams and compete to win that and to show up, you know, and if you guys notice what I'm describing is fucking Atkins, like that's what's great about it is his ability to go out and compete at like the highest level all the time you know like some athletes don't race all year and then they come and you know win a race and that's awesome like that's a great accomplishment but i don't think that's being i don't think that's being the greatest like and i hate him tom brady fucking hate him i'm a new york giants fan <laughs> i can't stand him but like he's the epitome of greatness because he's done it forever and he's just always there and that's like those are the people those are the athletes people remember, you know, for yeah. years and years and years to come. Greatness is defined by consistency to me. And it's yeah. interesting, you you described in the qualities you wanted to do in a race or, you know, emptying your well completely. And you were describing Ryan and Hunter. Uh, for, for years, yeah. I've always said the three toughest athletes I've ever competed against mm -hmm. in terms of not caring if you surge past them, not caring if they're hurting, not caring if they have to collapse at or before the finish line was Hunter. Atkins mm -hmm. and Isaiah. Yeah. You know, say what you will about that guy. He's as tough yeah, as it gets. And I would say that in the last couple of years, you've joined that list along with one or two other guys of the toughest, most stubbornly aggressive competitors that I've ever mm -hmm. raced against. I appreciate it. It means a lot to me, actually. <laughs> well, and that's something I value. Yeah. Uh, one thing I had always valued, you know, toot my own horn, I'd always considered myself a gamer that mm -hmm. I couldn't do things in training other people could, but I was going to out-compete my talent on race day. Yeah, and you but, still do it in the fucking stadiums, Brack, and I can't stand <laughs> not being able to beat you. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those things that it's closer to my skill set. Yeah. You know, I played basketball and ran for a long, no longer than four minutes throughout college. You know, so the shorter it gets and the more athletic it gets, the better for mm -hmm. me. But what I found about myself is that I am as tough of a person as I've ever met if I'm in range to win something. Yeah. But I cannot say that same thing about myself if I am not in position to accomplish my goal. But you, Hunter, Atkins, Isaiah, the position doesn't seem to matter as much. And I think some of that comes to the consistency of the build that goes into the race. That yeah. if the build is longer and more consistent, you can weather some differences in your race rather than have to be in the prime position in order to empty your well. Yeah. You know, we'll go back to conditioning, preparing for a race kind of on that is like that consistency in training and identifying what you, and that's what that's Atkins and Hunter are very good at it. They're figuring out what that race requires. And again, we'll go back to, we're not just training this to become, to in, become faster at it, but it's just to condition our body be, you know for me i've realized when it comes to race day whether i was just off hip surgery like 
the downhills, I'm going to hammer fucking downhills. The flats, I'm going to run them as hard as I can. But if you don't do that in training, your body can't handle it. And that's where cramps come and blowing up comes from. But if you identify those Utah, be on the run downhill for two and a half miles straight, like if you do a little bit of that in training, all right, maybe not the full too much. If you do intervals running downhill and your body can handle that beating down, 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 down. When it comes to race day, not only can your body hold up to that, but your mind knows what to attack and what it's capable, what your body's capable of. So you can squeeze it every last little ounce of performance out of it. And, and that's what's like, that's what's so unique about Atkins and Hunter is that they're so strategic about their races and they, they just know when they can hammer and when they can't hammer and they, they, they make a move. Um, and that was like when I won Jacksonville last year, like it wasn't, I wasn't shitting my pants being in first place. One, because I was preparing to beat Woods, but I knew there had to be a move made at some point. And once I made that move, I knew what paces I had to run so that the rest of the athletes couldn't catch me. And I was able to do that instinctively on race day because I had prepared for that physically and mentally. You know, I think a lot of people go into races just being fit and they don't look at the course map and figure out all right, where do I have to hammer? Where's my advantage? You know, where is the race going to be won and lost? Like, I think I picked this up from Hunter in Asheville that year he won, um, where he beat, I think it was, I don't know if Hobie, I don't think was there that Kill, year. Killian Kill on the way down. Yeah. yeah. And we, uh, because my brother's good buddies with him. We're listening, I was listening talk and you know, he was just like, it's a race to the top. And I'm like, you sure? He goes, yeah, it's a race to the top and hammer downhill. And you, you might not think that looking at that course map because there was the river and there's all the technical woods running and you, you figure there was going to be a lot of opportunities. That's exactly how he won the race. Like he got to, he busted his ass, killed himself to get to the top. And he knew exactly how long that climb was. And he knew he could run down as fast or faster than everybody else. And he won it just because he knew where to make the move. And that's where I think there's a lot of guys that are fit now, like, and on par with pretty much everybody's fitness, but do they know how to race is the question. And that's what we're going to find out this year. I think, I think this is good for people to hear because I feel like the, the athlete sees the top end performers and think they're just freaks and they're out there crushing every single workout. And they're just, it's just them being an animal going into the race and doing what they do. And they don't hear the inner workings behind (laughs) like the mad scientist side of people who specifically prepare Think about the intricacies of the buildup and what they're getting into, because that is like what really separates, I feel like, the top end performers from even sometimes I'll self-admit people like me who get caught up in other parts of my life mm-hmm. and then need to try to pull it together for a specific yeah. race. And and I want to bring it, I want to just, just to make sure that the people listening get what they want to get out of this. And you've done such a damn good job of talking about <laughs> The conditioning. I've done, a, I've done a damn good job of rambling well, on and talking. I hope no, you guys. I hope you guys can pull something from. <laughs> no, to you, to you, this is just common. Not like you know, this is your life. But to most of our people listening, this is eye opening. And and so we don't all have twenty hours a week to train. In fact, I wish I I could be one of those guys. I'm not. Okay. So if you're going to prioritize your your conditioning and your recovery, all the modalities, and somebody says, oh, okay, I can find two hours a week that I can scrounge up to put a little more time into the conditioning and recovery. Where do you direct those people? Like I'd say prioritize spending time in the water or doing this. Where would you say the biggest bang for buck? If you have two hours a week, find a deep water pool near you, 
do some research on the Berdanko method, deep water exercise. Um, you know, you can, you can message me or talk to, uh, um, Taylor Cruz, a cruise elite, Tom Barbeau, you go to berdankomethod.com or berdanko.com and try to find an instructor in your area. Um, and if like, it's just that recovery in the water is, it's a game changer. Like what people don't understand is every NFL team, once a week, they get their entire team, offensive linemen, big linebackers. They jump in the pool like they're not doing the same exercises, but they're deloading their body. Like it's it's um, I don't say it's a hidden gem because every high level athlete uses it. Every high level athlete that comes off surgery or a big rehab, they're in the pool. Like you know, it's out there, but it's not sexy, and it's typically associated with aqua size or old lady aqua aerobics and. You know, just get in the pool. Like it just has so many benefits that even if you didn't know what you're doing for exercise, you throw on a flotation belt and hang out. Like you're deloading your body. Um, you're you're getting out of that fight or flight, and you're letting yourself recover. And so people are clear. It's not like you're talking about going to the pool and swimming laps. No, you're talking about getting upright in the pool, upright vertical right? in the pool, and 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 moving around. Like there's there's specific things you can do, but that alone. Like spend some time in the water and it could be, if you got two hours a week, you know, try to go your run and, and try to spend 15 minutes in the water post run and let your body down regulate and kind of get that rehab going right away. Um, that's, that was, that's been the game changer for me, not only for rehabbing my body, but once you start realizing like, oh shit, I feel better now. I can run better the next day. Then it becomes, you develop an awareness of this stuff matters. All right. I'm getting faster without running because I'm doing this recovery work. And then your mind starts seeking out more information, you know? So if you can develop that awareness by jumping in the pool a little bit, all right. And then again, having that awareness and, and seeking out knowledge, further knowledge, like that's the path to go. And that's where I think a lot of us as coaches make mistakes of telling people what to do. Um, I'm not going to be able to instruct you right now, but hopefully I can spark some interest. And through everything I've rambled about for the past hour is that maybe it created a little bit of awareness um, that then you go seek out that knowledge on your own. Well, I can't think of a better place to kind of start <laughs> putting a bow tie on this and wrapping it up. Seek knowledge. Well, you know, it's the pursuit. You have to have your pursuit in life and you have to never stop learning. Yeah. So, Kirk, we're at the Bell Lab here. Would you agree? Yes, sir. We're at the Bell Lab. Bell Lab, Kempson. This is it. Anything Ooh. you have left in the tank, you got to empty it now. So anything no. we haven't, anything we haven't got to, people you want to thank, sponsors you want to plug, anything you have left, empty it now. Yeah, definitely the sponsors. I really like. We, we talked about this briefly. Is they are the ones that allow me to focus on this full time and put in the effort and being the best athlete I can be. Um, BJ shoes. Um, they do a great job of supplying with the shoes. Um, the best grip on the planet. Fantastic um, shoes. Fantastic shoes. Um, attack fuel is my plant-based sports nutrition. I use, um, I don't do good with like whey or anything. I, I prefer having a plant heavy diet. Um, amazing products, both their protein and their, um, energy bars is my favorite. And then, um, athletic brewing, which is a non-athletic, alcoholic craft brew um i know a lot of people probably look at that and think he's sold out for that you know i i grew up drinking a lot a lot of beers in college and i seeked out them before they were i think even affiliated with spartan because they have this sweet product where it's a 
they have all these craft brews that taste awesome. And it allows me to have something like enjoy a beer with a buddy and share that experience. Like I've gone, you know, I've moved further and further away from um, drinking and having alcohol on a, on a, a regular basis. Um, and the one thing that really keeps you from doing that is, is having that feeling of missing out, you know, of just having a good time with your buddies. And this allows me to hang out, have a beer. And, you know, for me, like going, a, you know, hiking up a mountain or run up a mountain with a buddy and we can celebrate with a beer on top without having the compromise. So um, they're I'm very fortunate to, to work with these companies and they support my journey as not as a influencer, but a, as an athlete. I'm uh, very fortunate to have that. I got one question I want to wedge in here real quick. Yeah. Um, this is my bell lap question. Um, and this is a person, this is a selfish question <laughs> out of my own personal curiosity. We did a good job of talking about your recovering condition. I just want to hear one like, you know, when you're really going to go put out a hard effort, a run type workout on your trails yeah. that you talk about, what's like one workout that you really like one of your staples that you'll, you'll filter in regularly or somewhat regularly to test your fitness or build your fitness on the trails? Um, uh, two, I'll say two. So one, I have a couple okay. loops that I have, all right, that I go out and hammer like on a, you know, on a regular basis just to see where my fitness is at. Um, that, in that includes bunch of hills, undulating terrain, technical terrain. But um, I've taken, a, I've talked to Woods a lot because he has such an extensive running background and um, doing these different types of ladder fart-like drills, um, which I just find where you're running at, you know, the hardest pace you can and then you're backing off and only running, um, you know, you're not, you're not floating, but you're just still running at a pretty good clip and just building that up like um, longer, longer dur duration and then shorter and shorter on the way back down. Um, I find those just translate to the efforts that we put in into racing. So what's a sample of your favorite fart liquor ladder? Um, so the one I took from Woods, I do two different ways. Early in the season, I run hard for a minute. Okay. Then I take time and a half off of running easier. And then I run hard for two minutes, time and a half off, build that up to about four or five minutes and then come back down. And when it comes closer to a race, same build up as far as one, two, three, four, five, maybe six minutes. But then I come down and only do half time recovery. Um, and that gets me like, it just torches me. Like I can't put in the numbers. Like I know you do it too, Kirk. Like I yeah, can't I put in the numbers that you do. I can't put in the numbers that Woods does. But um, when it comes to running, I'm more worried about the effort of just, you know, draining the tank and putting a really hard effort in so that come race day, I'm, I'm used to basically killing myself. And you're never doing that on flat roads. You're almost always on undulating shitty terrain. For yeah. The most part. Yeah. So uh, sometimes I'll take like a flatter trail um, just to see what kind of paces I can hit, but it's always on sandy, rocky grass. Like it's never on pavement or hardly ever. Uh, I, I, it hurts to run on pavement for me. Like it doesn't feel good. You're not alone. <laughs> I, I, I think there is one, I guess my last thing I'll add here is there, there's some, beauty to that doing your speed work off-road. I had a, a client talk to me this week about, you know, I, j I have trail, because I said, you need to get off trails now. It's time you, your speed work, at least 50% of your speed work at this point has to be done on the terrain you're going to race in because mm -hmm. you're losing too much of a percentage of your speed when you have to go off-road. Yeah. And the client said, well, I have this one, but I just can't find a good loop to do it on. It, it, it's just too broken up. <laughs> that's Then that's the one you have to use. Like switchbacks, looping back around, like having to reaccelerate. You just described OCR. That's the one you yeah. have to do it on. You're not setting a time. You just compare your no. time each time you do it. 
Exactly. And that's something I was gifted where I live in the Cape. Like, obviously I go up and train in Vermont a lot, but where I live in the Cape, we have these small little state park areas and it's, there's no hill over 250 feet. Like the biggest climb is 75 feet or something, but it's very undulating and the turns are just sharp. There's no straightaways. So, you know, even like my paces are so slow, like ridiculously slow, but I'm constantly having to reaccelerate and turn and cut and jump over things. And it's not like sexy for training. It doesn't build my confidence up running the slow paces. But when I come to a race, I'm like, shit, like I'm a rock star out here and I'm fast as heck because frankly, what I'm running in at home is harder than what I run at, you know, um, come race day. Yeah. Here's what I'll end with. In college, our coach always used to tell us, you have two matches to burn in this race. You're going to use one on the last lap. You only get one other match you can burn or your race is done. And in our sport, you spend your first couple of years trying to build up as many matches in your book as possible mm. because you've got to be burning them constantly. And then you get to the point where accelerations don't cost you matches anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's where that next level comes into play. First, you try to amass as many matches so you can keep burning. And then you get efficient at burning matches that now you don't even have to light it to reaccelerate. And that is what speed work on broken terrain does for you. You're amazing at relating things to other weird things, Bracken. You know what? I was told that analogies are a fool's errand. (laughs) That analogies are not useful. They're they're soothing. They make you feel good. And they're not good for it. And I don't care. I will make up analogies for the rest of my life happily. No, I think they're good. You got to, we talk about like awareness and stuff. When you're teaching people, you got to find a way to relate with them somehow. You know, and if you can't, like, they're never going to understand a word you're saying. Yeah. So if you hate analogies, leave it in the comments. Suck it. And we'll delete it. <laughs> uh, this, was a, uh, this was a long but very purposeful bell lap. And I think this conversation has been uh, has been a good one, Ryan. Thank yeah. you for being here today, man. Yeah, thanks for letting me ramble on, guys. I'm Ryan, where are people going to watch you next? What are your next – what are your big races? Oh, uh, um, I'll probably go to Seattle. Um We'll see. I, I'm really focused on, I'm really excited for Montana this year. That's I'm really one. excited for West Virginia this year. Um, I'm like, there'll never be a year I don't run Killington because it's just so much fun. Like, I don't care what it's next to. Um, and probably I'm really stoked for OCR Worlds of Vermont. Um, it should be a blast. It's going to be super hard. So we'll see. Right. You know, I'm still out there doing all the series races, but um, I try to keep it, keep in those ones that, really got me in love with the sport and you know are fun to train for excellent we'll turn into seattle watch this man put into practice all these training principles thanks ryan good guys